Let's open in prayer today. Father, thank you so much for a gorgeous day out. And thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather around your word, to study it, to open it, to be here. Teach us now, Father. We open our hearts to you and ask that we may learn wondrous things from your word. We thank you for this time and this opportunity in Christ's name. Amen. When Christ left this earth, when he finished his work on the cross, he ascended back into heaven. We call that the ascension. Um, and that allows him to do what he is presently doing, his present work. Um, there's coming a time when he will come again, and that will be his future work as king. Um, and in fact, when you see the offices of Christ, there is sort of a temporal progression to some extent. Christ first was our great prophet. Remember, when he came to this earth, he was our prophet. He really wasn't our high priest when he came necessarily, when he was here the first time. And he certainly didn't look like a king, did he? I mean, he was, but he didn't look like it. And that's one of the things that threw the um, religious leaders really for a loop. They didn't quite know how to categorize Christ. Because the person they were looking for in their Messiah was supposed to come and throw the Romans out and restore their nation and all that other kind of stuff that they had read in the Old Testament. And is true, by the way. But what they missed was repentance. They missed the requirement for that. See, they thought that God owed them something and that their, their view of the kingdom was the right view. And Christ, even though he tried to tell them, look, the kingdom is a real thing. Nevertheless, those who want to be part of the kingdom have to have the right heart. They missed that. And because of that, Christ, and, and, and we're going to talk about this in the um, doctrine of last things, because of that, the kingdom was postponed. It wasn't rescinded. There is a group of Christianity today that says Christ's promise, or God's promise for the future kingdom of Israel has been rescinded. They're called covenant theologians. You might know some of them. R.C. Sproul is one of them. A lot of them are from the Reformed background. And they say God's program, God's future program, does not have a literal physical kingdom. Because that was, uh, that was forfeited by Israel when they rejected their Messiah. No, it wasn't. It was put on hold for a time being. And we have, in the meantime, this invisible kingdom, of which we're part, the church age. But there is coming a day when the literal, physical kingdom will come. What did Christ ask us to pray? Thy kingdom come. It's kind of dumb to pray for a kingdom to come if the offer of the kingdom had been rescinded. Um, there's really no evidence for that in Scripture. They, they, there is a way they read the Scripture. We'll talk about that, so don't worry about it. We'll get there. Um, but there is a future literal kingdom. So the kingship, the, basically the king office of Christ, is really yet to be realized. Now, is Christ king right now? Yes and no. Yes, he is king in the sense that God has given him all authority. No, in the sense that Christ is not currently exercising that authority, right? Is Christ physically ruling now in this world? No, he's not. Now, is he, does he have the authority to do so if he wanted to? Sure he does. But when will his kingship, when will his authority be realized? Well, at his second coming. Right now, he is king, but he is not literally ruling this earth at this time. Alright? There's coming a time when he will. But right now, Christ is our high priest. He is our great high priest, as Hebrews talks about. And that really is a lot of his present work that we'll talk about here. So let's look at this. When we look at his uh, ascension, somebody look these passages up. Mark 16, 19. Luke 24. Uh, Acts 1, 9 and 1 Timothy 3.16. Can I get somebody to read the first one? I'm really glad you moved over there, Steve. She was giving you the evil eye. You know that. It was early on Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the dead. Keep going. And the first person who saw him was Mary Magdalene, the woman from whom he had passed out the seven demons. Mm-hmm. I think keep reading. Hopefully I got the right passage there. She went and found the disciples who were grieving and weeping. But when she told them that Jesus was alive and she had seen him, they didn't believe her. 
1619? Yeah. Mark 1619. Oh, okay. I got 19. I was a little worried there for a minute. <laughs> Can you read 19, Steve? When the Lord Jesus had finished talking with them, he was taken up into heaven and sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. Mm-hmm. The disciples went everywhere and preached, and the Lord worked with them, confirming what they said by many miraculous signs. Okay, so after Christ finished speaking his final words to his disciples, he ascended into heaven. How about Luke twenty four fifty one? While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Okay. Acts 1 9. That's probably the most popular one. Acts 1 9. Sort of like a sword drill here. <laughs> okay. And then 1 Timothy 3.16. Taken up in the glory. So the fact of Christ's ascension is an essential component of our faith. He was taken up in the glory. Um, and why is that important? Well, it's important for several reasons. One, it proves the Father's acceptance of his work on the cross. See, where did Christ go when he ascended into heaven? Where did he go? The right hand of the Father. Now, we're, now, if you understand anything about kings and kingdoms and all that in those days, the right hand was the place of honor. That was the place of primary honor. When you were, set, when you were to be seated at the king's right hand, remember we have this old expression, the right hand man? All right. When you sat at the king's right hand, that was the place of exaltation, a place of honor, a place of authority. You basically spoke for the king from that seat. And Christ ascended and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Now, what, is, what do you think it, it implies when, the, when it says he sat down? It's finished. The work is finished. All right. Now, what we have here is we have the awaiting of the realization of what he had done. Right? It doesn't remove the fact that he is seated in glory even as we speak right now. If we got ran over by a bus and found ourselves in heaven, Christ would be seated at the Father's right hand, a place of honor, a place of power. And remember when John and James came to Christ and said, Lord, we want to ask a favor of you. Um, let one of us sit on your right hand and one on the left hand in your kingdom. And Christ said, you don't know what you're talking about. That's not for you. That's not for me to give you. That's for the Father to give you. But what has the Father done? The Father has exalted Christ and set him at his right hand. And what does that imply about the Father's estimation of Christ's work? It's, it's finished. It's accepted. God would not exalt Christ back up to his right hand and Christ failed in his task. That Christ failed in the drama of redemption. That Christ not been the perfect substitute. Had he not fully done what the Father sent him to do, he would not be seated at the right hand of the Father. And the scripture says that he is seated back at the right hand of the Father, thus signifying that his work on the cross is fully, completely finished and accepted by God. He did what God called him to do, what God the Father sent him to do. He accomplished the task. And his ascension proves that the Father accepted that sacrifice on the cross. Yes. Okay. Mhm. And in fact, when you see, and I can't remember the exact passage on Revelation, it talks about Christ and it says he comes out from the throne. 
there's only one being that can come out from the throne. All right, that we can see, and that would be Christ. Um, one of the things about Christ's ascension is that he ascended physically, a physical body. And Dan really spent a good time on this and, and really did an excellent job in talking about the resurrection of Christ. The physical, bodily resurrection of Christ is an essential component of our faith. No resurrection, no Christianity. Go home, play golf, watch soap operas, something. Um, if Christ is not raised again from the dead, we're, we're of all men most miserable. And Christ ascended physically, bodily into heaven. So that means when we get to heaven, who are we going to see physically and bodily there? Christ. Now, are we going to see the Father? God is Spirit. So you're not going to see the Father. What you'll probably see is a blinding, brilliant light that it says that no man can approach. But we will see Christ. And after all, what did Christ say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Yes. Yeah. And one of the things about, you know, Revelation 20 and 21 is poor old John is trying to write something down that he can't really describe. He's grasping for words. The beauty of heaven is beyond our ability to even comprehend in our state now. We can't comprehend the glory and the beauty of that place. But Christ right now is seated at the Father's right hand. He is seated on the throne of heaven which implies he has all authority. In fact, what did he say? The Father has granted me all authority. The Great Commission, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. All right? Um, he has the authority of God the Father himself. He is sovereign king. He is not... And quite honestly, you know, we have a lot... Look, folks. Jesus Christ is king, and you either bow to him now or you bow to him then, but you're going to bow to him. There's no doubt about it. He is king. And because he ascended on high and is seated at the Father's right hand, and it says in Ephesians, all authorities, all, all, everything's been subjected to the Son, this proves his work is finished. We don't have to worry about Christ not doing what the Father sent him to do. The second thing it does is it restores the glory that Christ had with the Father before time began. He talks about this in John 17:5. Christ in his high priestly prayer says, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. Now, we're not going to understand this until we get there. But imagine what it would be like if we get to heaven and we're glorified and we enjoy the presence of God and the glory of heaven and the perfection of that place and then being given an opportunity to step out of heaven and come back here. Any takers? Five minutes in heaven, folks, you're not going to even want, you're not even, you know, if God calls and says, you know, we made a mistake, it's not your time yet. We've got to send you back. No way, I'm staying. I'm not going back there. I don't want to go to work Monday morning. <laughs> I want to stay here, you know. But realize that Christ had this glory in John 17, it says, Prostantheon, face to face with the Father. Perfect harmony from eternity past. And he stepped out of that. He gave it up. We talked about the kenosis, where Christ gave up the divine prerogatives and became a man and lived on this world like one of us. And now he's looking for that restoration of glory to go back. Not that the glory is the thing, but he can go back and be with the Father. That's, that's what makes heaven heaven. You know what makes heaven heaven is you're going to be with God. That's what makes it heaven. You know, the streets of gold are great. You know, the beauty of heaven is great. The redeemed is great. The angels are great. But what's really make heaven heaven is that you're going to be face to face with God. And you're not going to be able to follow it up. That's a wonderful thing. It's all about relationship. And Christ was longing to return to that place of fellowship with the Father. What the blessed experience Don't know. Didn't tell us. I know. Lazarus, the one who was raised from the dead. Yeah. It doesn't say. Um, 
God probably, you know, he died. We know he died, died. So if he died, died, he was in paradise in the place of the redeemed. Um, but evidently, when he came back here, he did not recall that. There's no indication that he did. He certainly didn't go on crusades talking about his trip to heaven and back, like some of these guys do today. Um, yeah. Um, and, and by the way, you know, just as an aside, I, I, we'll talk about this later, but I look askance at these guys that say, you know, I died for 90 minutes, I was in heaven, and I got a tour of heaven and all this. You know, I, I don't buy into that any more than the guys who went to hell. There's one guy, he wrote a book on, he had a trip to hell, God gave him a tour of hell, and then later on he got a tour of heaven. Um, he wrote books on it, and does a ministry talking about his trip to hell. The problem is his trip to hell doesn't jive at all with what the scripture says hell is all about. So I guess um, he didn't really go there. I, I say it's pizza, beer, anchovy, something. You know, didn't settle with him, had a good LSD, I don't know. Um, but... Look, folks, there's only one person who was from heaven and told us about it. Who is that? Christ. He told us what heaven is like. And even when he told us what heaven is like, it's a proximal language. We can't, he can't tell us what it's really like because we wouldn't get it. Now, uh, I'm going to throw a chink in the, uh, the wheels here. Okay. But, uh, not a chink. <laughs> um, uh, he went to heaven and he was not, he said, I, I can't even talk about it. Alright, now, now that's, good. that's a good passage here. Evidently, Paul did have a valid experience. Okay? But when he came back, he said, I can't even put in the words what I said, you know. He's not like these guys that come back and write books and go on TV ministries talking about their experience. One guy um, talked about being dunked by Christ in the river of life. That's silliness. All right, that's silliness. Um, now, there are a lot of people that believe that. But that's silliness. One guy said he was given a tour of a large warehouse in heaven. I'm not making this up. There's this large warehouse. And he went into this warehouse and he saw all these like arms and legs and eyeballs and hanging on the walls. You know, and it's you know sort of like a Frankenstein factory. And he, he was a little confused about that, and Christ told him, or I think it was Christ was with him, said, "Well, these are all the extra spare body parts I have for people with diseases. If they only had the faith, they could have them." All right, um, look, this is silliness. That is silliness. All right, that is silliness. Christ went back to be with the Father, to have the glory he had, to fellowship with the Father. And also what the ascension does, it enables his present work on our behalf. Had Christ not gone to heaven, he could not perform his high priestly function as our great high priest in Hebrews. Because when he went into heaven, what did he take? He entered heaven to make an atonement for us in heaven. And what did he atone the sin of mankind with? His own life. His life. He paid the price for our sin. He is our great high priest. It provides for the promise of the covenant, comforter. Remember Christ on the last night is with the disciples. He talks about going away and they're all sort of down and, and, and depressed and bothered. And he said, look, if I don't go away, the comforter will not come. And the word there, parakletas, someone called alongside, someone like me. And he uses the other comforter and it's not another of a different kind it's another of the same kind there's two Greek words parakletos para alongside kletos to call parakletos kaleo is from kaleo to call the Holy Spirit is our paraclete he's called alongside us he helps us he's there with us and there's two words in Greek otas and hutas I think it is and one means another of the same kind, one means another of a different kind. Well, Christ said, I'm going to send you a comforter of the same kind that I am, and he will be with you forever. When Christ ascended into heaven, he said, I will not leave you comfortless, I will send someone to be your comforter. And the promise of the Holy Spirit that we all have today is because Christ ascended into heaven. He sent another comforter to us. And what does that other comforter do? That other comforter is a permanent indwelling 
We all have the Holy Spirit. If you're, if you're born again, you have within you the Holy Spirit who gives you insight, helps you understand, is there constantly giving you guidance. He is called along. He's your comforter. He is the comforter. The ascension of Christ exalts Christ far above every name that is named. Philippians 2, 7 through 11. We talk about this as the kenosis. Did Christ get something in his... Did Christ have something after his ascension that he did not have before his ascension? Yes, he did. What was it? Well, again, yeah, yeah, glorified by. He had more glory, right? It's not that, you know, and that's one of the, the, the things here. God is perfect. You know, you can't make God more perfect than he already is. God can't get more glory than he already has, except in the sense that the creation can't appreciate his glory. Alright? Now, before Christ came into this world, if you were an angel, what would you know about Christ and God? Well, you'd have some idea that God is loving, right? Kind, forgiving. He doesn't destroy humanity. He's long-suffering. And God may even tell you things like He is merciful and gracious and forgiving. But you wouldn't really understand that. But once Christ came and you watched the second person of the Trinity nailed on a cross, and you're there asking God the Father, can we go and get Him down? Let us go. We will destroy humanity for doing this to your Son. And God said, no. And you watch Christ die as a, as a holy being. You watch the second person of the Trinity nailed on a cross and die and rise again from the dead and ascend into glory. What estimation would you have of him after that? A whole different one, wouldn't you? Oh, I've heard you're gracious. I see it. I've heard your long-suffering. I see it. And the angels, it says in Hebrews, desire to look into the things. They don't understand the forgiveness of God. That's something, an angel doesn't understand forgiveness because an angel, the holy angels, never sin. There's no need for forgiveness. We appreciate that. We will have an appreciation for God and for Christ and for what he has done in heaven that the angels will never have because we know what it's like to have gone through the garbage of this life and been redeemed. And when Christ ascended back into glory, he was given a name far above every name. And the creation, the, the holy creation, the holy angels look at Christ and they appreciate and they understand in a, in a way that they didn't understand before the greatness of God and what God is. And that's really what it means to glorify God. All it means to glorify God is you display what he is like. You show people what God is like. You adorn Him. You, you, God is forgiving. You need to be forgiving. Why? Because you make God look good when you do that. That's glorifying God. You're going to say something, Sam. Yeah, I want to back up two minutes, three minutes ago. Uh, uh, the silliness of that one scene about the parts and such. As I'm sitting here, I was, I was listening to you, but I was thinking about that further silly because Christ who made everything out of nothing, Christ who instantaneously uh, raised himself from the dead through the sheets, through the stones, Christ who will create us in a moment in the twinkling of an eye into our glorified body, change, say, etc. Why would he need spare parts? That, that's diminishing what he is otherwise Absolutely. But unfortunately, that is the silliness that certain branches of Christianity have fallen into. Because somebody says they had an experience, they saw this, everybody says, oh, okay, and they believe it. It's silly. They're not thinking. They're not thinking. They're, they believe it. They fall into it. It's silly. The other thing that Christ did when he ascended on high, he gave his spiritual gifts to his people. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 10 through 14 talk about this. When Christ ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to his people. And what gifts did he give? Well, in that context, it's the gifted offices of 
pastor and teacher and apostles and prophets. Christ gave gifts to his church. What gifts did he give to his church? He gave gifted leadership to lead the church when he wasn't here. And in fact, the New Testament says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's the foundation. But what is Christ raised up to lead his church, to lead his body while he is absent? Gifted men, pastors, teachers, and prophets in the sense of those who proclaim the truth, not necessarily those who predict the truth. We've talked about that. The major role of a prophet is not predicting, but preaching. And Ephesians, he gave gifts unto men and he, 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 he uh, didn't leave his church without any resources. And not only that, but the Spirit who comes gives spiritual gifts to us. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts in a few weeks. He gave spiritual gifts to enable the body of Christ to function. And by the way, just so you understand, your spiritual gift is not for your benefit. It's for the benefit of the body. It's not for you. God did not give you a spiritual gift to make you spiritual. He gave you a spiritual gift to minister to other people. And that's what it's all about. And if you're not ministering to other people, you're not exercising your spiritual gift. If I have the spiritual gift of teaching and I talk to myself in front of a mirror, it doesn't do anybody any good. It only is good when I use it to edify the body of Christ, when I use it as God has gifted me to use, to be used. And God's gifted all of us in certain ways. And he gave gifts to his people. What's Christ currently doing? He ascended, he's in heaven. What is he currently doing? What is Christ doing even as we speak right now? Making intercession for us as our great high priest. Let's look at these uh, verses here. Somebody read um, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19. Hebrews is a, is a wonderful book. I know a lot of people steer away from it because they figure it's too hard to figure out. It's really not. It's a, it's a book that's just a very precious book. But let's look at Hebrews six nineteen through 20. Somebody read that. We have a sure and steadfast anchor, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What's that talking about? Inner place behind the curtain. The Holy of Holies. Now, who could go in the Holy of Holies? High priest. And how often? Once a year, after making all kinds of sacrifices. And the writer of Hebrews saying is, where did Christ go? By the way, did you know that there's a temple in heaven? The temple, in fact, the temple on earth has been that was in the wilderness was patterned after the temple in heaven. And you see that in Revelation. It talks about the temple in heaven. And where did Christ go when he ascended? He went right into the holy place. Now, who is in the holy place? God. And Christ is our anchor. And some say this is a fascinating wordplay here because in those days when they had ships and they would go to a harbor, you know, they didn't have powered ships and all that. It was kind of hard maybe to get in some of these harbors. So they'd take a little rowboat, put the anchor in it, and row the rowboat into the harbor, and then drag the ship into the harbor. And some say that that might be the word picture here, where Christ has entered in the holy place, and we are on that rope, and he's going to bring us where? Into the very presence of God. He is our anchor. He is behind the veil. And not only that, it says here, and we talked about this last week, he's a priest after the order of... Melchizedek, not Aaron. And we talked about that, what that means. Melchizedek mentioned four times in Scripture. Hebrews, here in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, it's mentioned in Psalm 110 and mentioned in Genesis. And in all cases, what do we know about him? Well, he was a high priest. It says he was a high priest of the Most High God. But we don't know where he came from. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know his lineage. We don't know his parentage. We do know Aaron's, right? We know where Aaron started. And the writer of Hebrews goes to great pains to show that the Aaronic priesthood is actually subservient to that of Melchizedek because when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, who paid tithes along with Abraham? Levi. 
And who's Levi? He is the priestly line. So the Aaronic priesthood paid ties to Melchizedek. And not only that, but Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And the rhetorical question is, well, who's greater? Does the greater bless the lesser or the lesser the greater? The greater blesses the lesser. Therefore, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, who's greater than Levi. And Christ was not of the tribe of Levi, he was of the tribe of Judah. So, if Christ was to be a high priest, um, you had only two possible sources of that priesthood. One, he had to be a priest after the order of Aaron, which is temporary. Or he had to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who is eternal. There's no indication that the priesthood of Melchizedek was ever suspended. It was always there. And Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is our great high priest. And because he never dies, the priesthood will never change. Right? It will never change. He ever lives to make intercession for us. God's never going to change his mind about salvation. He's never going to change his mind. Because Christ lives forever. He never dies. The priesthood will never change. There's no priesthood coming after Christ. His is the eternal priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood was temporary. It was built in. It was built in with an expiration date. Melchizedek's was not. And that is Christ. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. How about Hebrews 4, 14 through 16? That is a great passage on what Christ is doing now. He is our great high priest. And what kind of high priest is he? Sympathetic. Why? He is one of us. See, it, wasn't, it wouldn't have done any good for Christ to just like pop into existence and be glorified, you know, and, and live a sinless life and die. That wouldn't tell us a whole lot. He had to be like one of us. He had to face our infirmities. He, he, he knows when you pray, Christ knows what you're going through. He knows it. He's been there. And he can sympathize with you because he's, he's been down that road. He knows about your fears. He knows about your trials. He knows about the difficulties you have in life. He's not, he's not apathetic about it. Apatheo. Patheo is to feel and ah means not. He is not, not feeling. He feels. He understands. He knows. And because of that, it says we can come boldly. The word for boldly there is not an attitude of pomposity. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about we can clearly, without any facade, approach him. The idea there is openly. Why can we be open with Christ? Because he knows what we're thinking. You know, we have this idea that somehow we're going to fake God out and, you know, come in and hide. Our... God knows what you're thinking. Just, just be open. <laughs> You're not going to hide yourself from him. He sees everything. I just want to say that Jesus suffered every degree of temptation. Yes. And he went to the ultimate degree. We talked about that. He took every temptation to the ultimate end and did not bend. So whatever level of temptation that you and I are facing, he's been there and passed it. He knows it. And right now, he is there making intercession for us. And we can come to God and we can bring our, our needs and our... We can, we can, we can go there and find grace. And that's the idea. Find grace to help in time of need. We can find a sympathetic ear. We don't have to go to God and say, Oh, get out of here. You know, you've been here too much. You bother me. Go away. No, we have a sympathetic high priest. It just occurs to me the fact that he's sympathetic and empathetic. Uh, the importance of seeing an understanding of, of something being 
necessary for it to be relational, personal, experiential versus just being academic. And I say that because those folk who are even theologians, you know, who only have an academic approach to this book here and all that it says, it, without there being a, an empathetic, sympathetic person, they are unable to truly feel and know certain things that we believers feel and know, mm-hmm. but they criticize it because they're not there. Yeah. You need, Christ needed to be a human being. He needed his full humanity to understand us. Now, did God understand it theoretically? Yes, but he understood it in reality. Yes. That's the same thing when it says that Christ was made sin. You know, he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. What does it mean? Christ didn't know what sin was? Of course he knew what sin was. But on that cross, Christ took upon himself the sin of the world and the experience that he experienced was as though he did it all. Now think about that next time you want to go and do a sin. Christ hung on that cross and took your sin and, and experienced the rejection and the shame and the guilt as though he did it. Although he didn't do it, it was as though he did it. Yeah. He did not, he did not in essence become sin. That's one of the errors, heresies of the word faith movement who said that in essence Christ became sin. No, in essence Christ did not become sin any more than in essence the scapegoat became sinful. But Christ took upon himself sin as though he did it. And we will never understand that. That's right. I can go to him and he says, I understand what you're going through. Now understand, he doesn't excuse it. There's no excusing here. That sin is paid for, but Christ understands our frailty. He understands what we face. And he's sympathetic. And he's sympathetic in the perfect sense. He never gets short with us. Go away, you bother me too much. He's our sympathetic high priest. How about Hebrews 9.24? For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Christ did not enter into a man-made tabernacle, right? Now, if he was the order of Aaron, where would he have had to go? Temple. But he's not of the order of Aaron, right? He's the order of... Melchizedek. So the tabernacle that he entered was not the earthly temple. What was it? The heavenly temple. And what did he do when he entered the heavenly temple? He made intercession for us. And what was that intercession? What was the sacrifice that Christ took himself? He was the sin bearer. I'll tell you what, I'd rather have a high priest in the heavenly tabernacle than one down here. Because the problem with the one down here is what did they have to do every year? Same thing. He had to go back. How many times did Christ enter in the heavenly tabernacle? Once. Once. To make eternal redemption for us all. And that's why, by the way, he sat down. He's not up there redoing the sacrifice. And that, by the way, is one of the great heresies of the Catholic Mass. One of the great heresies of the Catholic Mass is the Theologians in the theology of the Catholic Church believe that when you partake of that Mass, you are sacrificing Christ all over again. Folks, Christ was sacrificed one time. And it is done. And he's not sacrificing himself again and again and again. One sacrifice for sin, forever, he sat down. And by the way, were there any chairs in the tabernacle? Why? You're never done. No matter how many goats you kill, there's another one in line. There's no sitting down. There was no saying, I finished. It's like, okay, I've got to get up tomorrow morning and kill them all over again. It was never done. But Christ, when he did his work as our great high priest and went into the tabernacle, he 
sat down at the Father's right hand, meaning it is finished. It's done. There's no more sacrificial work. Now he can be our sympathetic high priest and, and intercede on our behalf before the throne of God. That's why the theology behind the Catholic Eucharist uh, uh, is called transubstantiation. He actually, that actually, that communion element physically becomes the literal body of Christ. That's gross. But that's what they believe, you know. And again, understand, I'm not picking on Catholics to pick on Catholics. I'm picking on the system, the theological system, which is heretical. He is our intercessor, a tireless advocate on our behalf. This is great. First John 1, 9 and 2, 1 through 2. Somebody read those passages. First John 1, 9 and 2, 1 through 2. And then 2, 1 through 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. What is that John talking about there? He uses the great word advocate. That's a legal term. It's a lawyer. It's a representative. And John is saying, you know, I'm writing these things to you so that you do not sin. Now, understand what John is saying. It doesn't say that you commit an act of sin, it's that you don't live in a pattern of sin. Do we all sin? Sure we do. And when we do, what do we have in heaven on our behalf? Christ. And who's he defending us against? Satan, the accuser of the brethren. There's a great passage in Revelation chapter 12 where it says, Heaven rejoices when Satan is cast out. What is Satan doing right now? Satan is accusing the saints before the throne of God. How do you know that? Well, Job 1 and Job 2 talks about that, right? Satan shows up and says, Oh, look at Job. Yeah, yeah, don't let me touch him. Of course he's going to worship you. He's impugning the character of Job. He's impugning the character of the believers. And you bet when we sin, he can go up and say, he did it again. Schaefer sinned again. And Christ says, he's covered, he's mine. And God says, case dismissed. We have an advocate, we have someone on our behalf who's arguing our case. Now, does that make you want to sin? No, it doesn't, does it? He is our advocate. Mm-hmm. And by the way, it's interesting. Um, well, let's let's look at Hebrews, or not Hebrews, but Romans chapter eight, verse thirty-four. This is a this is this is a wonderful passage. Romans eight is my favorite chapter in the Bible. All right. But let's look at um, verse thirty-four. I'm going to read. Well, let, let's do this. Verse thirty-one. Pick up the context. Let me read this. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for you, who can be against you? Well, let's think about this. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Um, Who could be against us? If God's for us, who can be against us? Well, maybe God can be against us, right? He could. But and then Paul says, well, wait a minute. He gave his own son for you. So is he going to be against you? No. This is called the argument from the greater to the lesser. God did the greater thing. What did God the Father do? He gave his own son up for you. Is he not going to then keep you? Is God going to turn you aside after making the greatest sacrifice possible? Is he going to let some sin come in between you and him? No, I don't think so. So God can't be against us. Well, let's see. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. God the Father is the one who justified us. Can he condemn us? No, because he's declared us righteous. So he's not going to condemn us. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. 
Christ rose again from the dead. Is Christ going to be against you? He died for you. He's not going to be against you. Okay. So, God, the Father is not against you. Christ is not against you. So, who can separate us from the love of God? You've got God for you. You've got Christ for you. Well, let's try what? Tribulation. No, that ain't going to work. How about distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger of sword? Is that going to separate you from God's love? No. No. As is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, regard as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Hupo Nike. More. You are a super conqueror. You don't win. You win big time. It's a blowout. It's like what the Indians are facing. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing. Why? Because Christ is there making intercession for you. And he will not let you go. All right. Skeptics, cynics, read this and if, if, if they, which, okay. But let's pretend they read this and they say, how can such things as famine, pestilence, this persecution, you know, this stuff, this, this, how could that not be separation from, or, or that is God separating himself from us because if he was really a loving God, he wouldn't let those things happen. The problem with that is they don't have an eternal perspective. That's, that's the answer. You don't have a term. Look, any garbage you go through in this life is nothing. It's not even worthy to compare to the glory. Paul said the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. When you have all the, all the trouble, all the garbage in your life, all the problems that you've had, you're not, it's not even anything to compare to what you're going to get. And when you get to heaven, it's like, it's nothing. But see, we have a temporal perspective. We think, oh, gee, you know, if I'm a child of God, everything's supposed to be hunky-dory, peachy keen for me. Well, folks, we live in a fallen world. <laughs> We're fallen, aren't we? The promise is not for now. The promise is for eternity. I'll take that over the promise of now. And what temporary looks like he is abandoning us now, he's not eternally. He's always there. You're, did you raise your hand? Okay. He's eternally there for us. He will never abandon us. Nothing can separate us from God's love. And Paul basically says anything past, present, future, anything yet to be created, there's nothing out there that's going to separate you from God's love. And notice that is eternal love. Eternal love. And that's the perspective we have to have. It's the eternal perspective, not the temporal. Yeah, we live in... Folks, you live in a fallen world. Things rust, things break, you get sick, you're going to die. That's part of being in a fallen world. But God's overcome that in the eternal grand scheme of things. And, and that's part of the reversal of the curse that he has done. But he is our tireless intercessor. He is always there for us. I'm going to skip the next one, so I want to get to this one. He cares for his church. What's he doing right now? He's caring for his church. Who is his church? All the believers. He's caring for his church. In fact, in Revelation 1 through 3, this is a fascinating passage. We'll get to it at some point in eschatology when we're talking about doctrine of last things. But in Revelation chapter 1, we see Christ walking in the middle of what? Seven golden lampstands. And what's he doing? He's tending them. What are these seven lampstands? What are these seven churches in Asia Minor. And what is he doing as he looks at each one of these lamps? He's looking it over. He's, he's finding some fault with it. He's trimming the wick, so to speak. And what you see in Revelation 2 and 3 is the messages he has to these seven churches. And some of the messages are good. Some of them are bad. But Christ is interested in the purity of his church. Why? We're his extension. You know, Christ is interested in the purity of the church of the open door. We're an extension of Christ on this world. And if we don't do a good job of representing him, it makes him look bad. He is pruning his church. He wants to present the church to him spotless, without blemish. 
And even right now, his, his goal is the purity of the church. And you see that in Revelation chapter 1 through chapter 3. What else is he doing? He's preparing a place for us. My Father's house are many dwelling places. And the beauty of that, that, the beauty of that picture is the imagery, the, the wedding imagery of ancient Israel. Where what would happen is a man and a woman would be betrothed. Sometimes they, their parents would arrange the wedding. And usually the first time they actually saw each other is when they were actually in, engaged, officially. And then what the man would do is he would go back to his father's house and he would build an addition to the house for his bride. It would take a while to maybe do that. Maybe take him a year to build it, to get it ready for her, to get ready for their family. And when it was finished and when it was done, he would go to retrieve his bride and take her back to be with him. What has Christ done? Christ went to heaven to prepare a place. And when he is done, what is he going to come and do? Come and get his bride. And take us home to be with him. That's one of the great images of the church, the bride of Christ. Revelation 19, we are his bride. And then finally, yeah. And in fact, the, the wedding celebration includes, I believe, and we'll talk about this later, the millennium itself. That's part of the wedding celebration. That's part of the party. If you see the parables of Christ, he talks to the Israelites about the wedding of the king's son, and he talks about them being invited, the Jews, to this wedding. Well, we're not, we're, we're the bride. We're not the invited guests. The Israelites are the invited guests, and they're being invited to the millennium, the party. The wedding party. And then finally, he is awaiting the realization of his literal rule in the promised kingdom. He's waiting for the time in which he will come back and physically receive his kingdom. Now, let's look at Luke 19. I want to end on this. This is an important passage. Luke 19. This is a very, very important parable that he said. Um, verse 11. Let me read this, and I'll comment as I go along. And as he heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. What's going on? Well, they're on their way up to Jerusalem for Christ's passion. And what do the disciples think? We're going to establish the kingdom. It's here. So Christ has to deal with that false conception. And he said, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, by the way, this happened. It was called Archelaus. Archelaus was one of the Herods. He's a bad guy. But when his father, Herod the Great, died, Herod split the kingdom into three parts. And um, before the sons could be called king, they had to go to Rome and be officially given that title before they could take over the kingdom. And the people of that day would have understood this very well. Herod was a king, but his kingdom, his, his title of king was conferred to him by Rome. His sons were king. They were given that title by Rome. And for them to receive that title, they had to go to Rome and be officially given that by Caesar. So what happened is Archelaus had to take a trip to Rome. And he was hated. Um, and uh, as he was going away to Rome, the Jews sent a delegation to try and keep him from becoming king. It didn't succeed. But it says here, this nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. Now, who's the nobleman in the parable? Jesus. And he went to a far kingdom, a far country to receive a kingdom. What's a far country? Heaven. To receive a kingdom and a return. And while he was gone, what did he do? He called ten of his servants. He gave them ten minas. Uh, each servant got a mina. What is a mina? It's a measure of money. It's about 100 days wages. Three months wages. Think about it. And he said, uh, engage in business till I come. You might, some of your versions might say occupy. Pragmatuomai is the Greek word. It means go do business. So he's going to go get a kingdom. He calls in ten servants. He gives each of them a pound of money, a hundred days wages. He says, go do business until I come back. 
His citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. But that didn't work because when he returned, having received the kingdom... By the way, who's the citizens here in the parable? Jews. We don't want this king to rule over us. Is it going to thwart God's establishing him as king? No, it's not. When he returned and received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came in and said, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because you've been faithful very little, you should have authority over ten cities. The second one came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. Five hundred percent. And he said, Well done. You'll be over five cities. And another came and said, Lord, here's your men. I've kept it laid away in a handkerchief. I was afraid of you. I didn't do anything with it. And he said, I'll condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Now, by the way, there's no indication that that was really what he was like, but that's what the servant thought the king was like, wasn't it? Is Jesus Christ an evil king? No, he's not at all. And he said, uh, why didn't he even put it in the bank? At least I'd have gotten interest on the money, but I want you to take that minute and give it to the one who has ten. And they said, Lord, he has ten minas. And he said, I tell to you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. What's the parable here? Christ has gone into a far country to receive the kingdom. And while he's gone, what, did, what is we, his servants, what are we to do? Occupy. That does not mean sit down, take it easy, you know, hold down the fort. It means go do business. With what? Well, whatever he gave you, right? And why is that important? Why, does, why, did, the, why did the master give these guys a mina? Why did he have them do this? You ever think of it? He didn't need more money. It wasn't the idea of money. What is he trying to do? Well, if you're a king, what do you need to help? Have you help? What do you need help to do? Rule. Who do you want to help you rule? Losers? No. You want trustworthy people, right? So he wants to find some trustworthy servants. So who's he going to get to help him rule? Well, let's have a test. Let's give these guys a pound. Let's see what they do with it. And when he comes back, those who have done something with that get rewarded. Those who have done nothing lose what they have. Christ has gone off to receive a kingdom. He is coming back, folks. And when he comes back, what is going to happen to every one of us? What did you do with what I gave you? How well did you manage the resources, the time, the opportunities that I gave you? And some of us have done diddly squat. Do we get... To be part of heaven? Sure we do, but what's our reward? You just get to be there. Those of us who have been faithful, what do we get? Rewarded for what we have done. Whatever gifts, whatever talent, time, treasure, that's, all, that's what it's talking about here. Folks, Christ has gone to receive a kingdom and someday he's going to come back. Having received the kingdom... We, his servants, are going to be rewarded. And the people who would refuse to have Christ reign over them, what happens to them? Slaughtered. They're killed. Christ is going to receive a kingdom. And right now, he is waiting for that time when the Father says, it is time to go. So is he king now? Yes, but not in the physical, literal sense. That is coming. Yes. The believers who have, as you said, done Biblically squat, they're still going to be there. Uh, in First Corinthians three, uh, we suffer two, loss yet by they're fire. Going to suffer, they're, they're worse, they're going to be burned up, but they will be saved yet. Mm-hmm. Fire. Yep. Yet so is by fire. First Corinthians three is the passage on reward, and it says all of us are building with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or stubble. And someday God's going to light a torch and what's going to remain? Well, gold, silver, and precious stone, but the wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up. Some people, all they have is wood, hay, and stubble. Yes? Um, when you talk about the cash, you said that, you never said that. 
them in front of you. Does that mean, um, is he talking about the person that kept it on cloth? No. He's talking about his enemies who would not have him rule over them. The servant is still, he's still part of the kingdom, but he's just a servant. The enemies who would not have Christ rule over them will be slain. And this, I wish I had more time to develop it, but this is a picture of what's going to happen when Christ returns. Who gets to enter the millennium kingdom? Those that believe. The enemies will not be entered. They will not get in. They will be destroyed in the tribulation and in the judgments to follow. All right. Let's close in prayer. We're done. <laughs> Father, thank you for this day and for granting us this opportunity. And I pray that you'd help us to ponder what we've gone over today. And Father, I thank you that we have a great high priest who is there on our behalf. Who's making intercession for us because we really need it. We thank you that Christ is ever living. His priesthood will never end. We have an advocate, Father, who takes our case before you. And it's not because of any righteousness which we've done, but because it's your mercy and your grace and your love and your forgiveness. And we give you all the praise and all the glory in Christ's name. Amen.